Congregation, boys and girls, this morning we saw how God in a wonderful and dramatic way redeemed the people of Israel. And we saw how he did that. He did that by way of the Passover. When he passed over the people of Israel, sinful and unworthy in themselves, and yet chosen by God to be his people. And God redeemed them because of the lamb of the Passover, the lamb which literally took the place of the people of Israel, the lamb which took the place of all the firstborn in every family of Israel. Because if it were not for that lamb, also every firstborn in their homes would have died. But because of that lamb, and because of the blood of that lamb, God was able to pass over them. And so as we saw this morning, the Passover marked the birth of Israel as a nation. But now I have a question. Why did God redeem his people? Why did he deliver them from the bondage of Egypt? Why did he set them free? Why did he lead them out of Egypt? Why did he pave a way for them in the Red Sea where there was no way? What was the purpose of all of this? Was it merely to deliver them from the miserable existence they had, or was there another purpose? And it's very clear, of course, that God saved his people for a purpose. This people have I formed for myself, and they will show forth my praises. So in other words, what now follows, also through this 40-year journey in the wilderness, is that the people of God who had been redeemed by God because of that lamb, they now had to learn to live like the people of God. And so it is with the believer today. Dear believer, God saved you for a purpose. Not merely to deliver you from sin and all of its consequences. Not merely to deliver you from hell and to, to secure for you a place in heaven. No, he redeemed you in order that you would be a people unto him. He redeemed you. So that as God's redeemed people, you would live a life to his glory. That you would actually fulfill the purpose for which God created us. And so with this evening, as we are here to reflect on what transpired this morning, that will also be our focus. This morning, we saw displayed before us the wonder of the cross in the broken bread and the shed wine. We saw set before us the foundation upon which God can be the God of his children and they can be his people. But see, now we have an obligation as God's redeemed people, and that's why we have an hour of reflection, not only to reflect on what God displayed for us visibly, but to so reflect upon God's amazing grace in Christ that it would motivate us to live a life unto Christ, because that is the purpose for which we have been redeemed. So with God's help, we're going to focus on the first three verses of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Let's read God's Word in our text. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection 
on things above and not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. So in this passage, we have Paul's exhortation to seek heavenly things, to seek those things which are above. First of all, we will consider the focus of this seeking. So again, boys and girls, if you have your Bibles open, right, that we find in verse 1, because Paul does not leave us in the dark as to exactly what he means by seeking those things which are above. He says, because that's where Christ sits, at the right hand of God. So the focus of this seeking is the exalted Christ on the Father's right hand. Secondly, the method of this seeking. How are we to do this? Well, in verse 2, he said, set your affection on things above. And I'll hope to explain to you what he means by this. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. The method of this seeking. And thirdly, the motive for this seeking. For, he says, for, so now he gives the argument, for ye are dead. And your life, your spiritual life, is hid with Christ in God. That should motivate us. So Paul's exhortation to seek heavenly things, the focus of this seeking, the method of this seeking, and the motive for this seeking. Paul's letter to the Colossians is often called the twin epistle of the letter to the Ephesians. If you compare those two letters, you will discover a remarkable similarity in terms of content. And so he wrote this letter during his imprisonment, during the years 61 through 63, when he was in a Roman prison. And God used his servant to write a letter, and to write letters that are to the benefit of God's church until this day. Many were the perplexing ways in which God led his servant Paul, who often must have wondered when he was imprisoned again. How can this, how can this agree with the word to which I've been called? But we know now today that God in his overruling providence used his servant even then, and we are the beneficiaries of that today. And what prompted him to write this letter is that he had received a visit from Epaphras, who was the pastor of the congregation in Colossae. And he had great concerns about what was happening in Colossae. Great concern about the influence of heretical teachers who were introducing a false kind of spirituality, a counterfeit spirituality. And I will not weary you with what that so-called Colossian heresy was. But you see, God in his overruling providence used that situation to enable Paul to address what real spirituality looks like. And that's why the letter to the Colossians has one of the most marvelous and extraordinary statements about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is saying in these verses, he's saying to the Colossians, he is saying, true spirituality is a preoccupation with Jesus Christ and his work, through his word, by means of his word. Paul is saying, the mark of a spiritual man, the mark of a spiritual woman, is that they are preoccupied with Christ, preoccupied with what he communicates in his precious word. And what Paul is saying in our text is that the more we are preoccupied with Christ, the more we focus on Him, the more we focus on His person and on His work, 
the more spiritual we will be, the more godly we will be, the more Christ-like we will be. And so the advice the Apostle Paul gives us in this passage is a very practical advice. Throughout my ministry, I've heard people say, well, Pastor, we want to hear practical preaching. I agree. But this is very practical. Because you see, if we grasp what Paul is saying in this passage, that will manifest itself in every aspect of our lives. And of course, when we read the rest of the chapter, the Apostle Paul unpacks that for us in a very practical way, including exhortations for husbands and wives and children. And so the more we are focused on Christ, the more we are preoccupied with Christ, the more Christ-like we will become. So there are several things here that Paul tells us that are so worthy of our consideration. He says, if ye then be risen with Christ. And the structure of that sentence in Greek is such that actually we could read it in English and say, since then ye be risen with Christ. So Paul is saying to the believers in Colossae, Let's consider, first of all, who you are. Let's consider what is your identity. What is your position? He says, well, he says, remember, you are risen with Christ. And that phrase, with Christ, is repeated later, also in verse 3. That's a very important phrase in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Because with that expression, that simple expression, with Christ, Paul is describing the wonderful union that exists between Christ and his people. That's one of the dominant themes of all of his epistles. And so he reminds the Colossian believers, remember who you are. Remember, not only you have risen, with Christ, but remember your union with Christ. And of course, when he says, you are risen with Christ, that was a way of describing the wonderful miracle of regeneration. Because that's what happens in regeneration. That's what happens in the new birth, when the Holy Spirit makes a dead sinner alive. What happens? Well, you see, in the new birth, the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ. As in, in the new birth, the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. That is so essential. And that union, you see, that union is a real union. That union is a living union. That's the union that Jesus talks about in John 15 when he talks about abiding in him. He's talking about this real living relationship between him, the vine, and between all of the branches. So how do we know? Boys and girls, how do you know? How do you know whether you have risen with Christ? How do you know whether you are united to Christ? Well, very simply this way. Congregation, when the Spirit unites us to Christ, and the life of Christ begins to flow out of Him into me, that new life that comes out of Christ is attracted to Christ. That's the undeniable mark of the work of the Holy Spirit. And where that's lacking, I don't care what you can tell me about your experiences, but if your spiritual life is not characterized by being attracted to Christ, then you lack the real biblical evidence that you have been born again. So let me repeat this. The life that flows out of Christ as a result of being united to him, the life that flows out of Christ will always be attracted to Christ. 
That's why Paul ended his letter to the Ephesians with these wonderful words that I find so moving. He says that all who love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. And so when the Holy Spirit makes us alive spiritually, when he convicts us of sin in all of its vileness and ugliness, he has but one objective. His objective is to bring you to Christ. Not only once, but over and over again. That's his work. His work is to take out of him and to show it unto us. His work is to glorify him. But what the apostle wants to emphasize here is that union with Christ is so extraordinary. That union with Christ leads to extraordinary benefits. Because congregation, when the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ, when He makes us one with Him, when He grafts us into Him, He makes us a partaker of all His benefits. But now what He's doing here, the Apostle, He is saying... Now, in light of that reality, in light of the fact that you have risen with Christ, the very fact that you have been made alive by the Spirit of God, that you have been led to this Christ, in light of your position in who you are in Christ, you must now ascend and focus on the exalted Christ. That's what he's doing here. He says, seek You who are risen with Christ, you who have been made alive in Christ, you who have been drawn to Christ, who have embraced Christ, who have come to Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Congregation, I think this is such important instruction. Because not only are we to to reflect on what Christ has accomplished on the cross, oh yes, that is important, that's why we do have the Lord's Supper. This do in remembrance of me, in remembrance of my finished work on the cross. But it's equally important for us to focus on the exalted Christ and to realize that we have a Savior at the right hand of God who is as fully engaged as your Savior and your Redeemer as He was when He walked upon the earth. Seek those things which are above. It's so important that Paul, inspired by the Spirit, he he immediately explains what he means. Because there are plenty of people today who claim to be Christians and all they really are are heaven-seekers. They just want to, they're interested in Jesus because Jesus keeps you out of hell and gets you into heaven. And there are many who claim to be Christians who are only interested in that. That's why Paul immediately adds, he says, well, let me tell you what I mean by those things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. In other words, he is saying, I want you to focus on the Christ who is above. I want you to focus on the Christ who is at the Father's right hand. Because congregation, there is so much instruction, there is so much comfort for God's children in focusing on the exalted Christ, in focusing on what He is continually doing on His Father's right hand also on our behalf. First of all, this truth is a wonderful reminder what Christ has accomplished on behalf of His people. It's a wonderful reminder that Christ has accomplished a complete reconciliation, a complete restoration. Paul wants to remind the Colossian believers and us That Christ is not sitting there all by himself. 
No, he's sitting there as your savior, as your mediator, as your representative. He is seated there as the one who has carried you into the very presence of God. That's what Paul wants to get across. He wants to get across his dear believer. Because your Savior is there, that means you are there. His presence at the Father's right hand is meant to be to your unspeakable comfort. That means he's engaged there as your advocate. He is engaged there as your representative. In him, you are in the very presence of God. Listen to what Paul says, Ephesians 2, verses 5 and 6. He has taken us together with Christ. There you have it, made alive, risen with Christ. By grace are you saved. And has raised us up together, he says, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And I begin with myself when I say that we focus on that far too little. Far too little do we meditate on what that means. That your Savior is there at the right hand of the Father. Because what does that mean? The right hand of God. You well know, I'm sure you've heard this before, that in that culture... If you wanted to honor someone, you would place that person at your right hand. Especially kings would do that. If they had a banquet, if they wanted to honor someone, they would give that person a place at their right hand. And everybody would know, look, this person is sitting at the king's right hand. That means the king highly esteems this person. And something else. It also meant that the king's desire was to communicate with that person, that person upon which he bestowed his favor. And so, congregation, the fact that Christ has been given a seat at his Father's right hand, and of course, that doesn't physically mean a right hand. This is what we call a figure of speech. But what it simply tells us is that the Father has received him, that he is completely satisfied with the work that his Son has accomplished. That means, dear believer, that in him we have a position in the very favor and presence of God. It means that in him we are at God's right hand. In him we are seated in heavenly places. That means that in him we may know there's an unbroken relationship between God and his children in Christ. Unbroken fellowship. Even when from our side, that fellowship so often fluctuates. And that fellowship is broken. We all know times when our hearts are so tender and when Prayers flow and the tears flow. And there are those times where our heart can seem so cold. And then we, have the, we make the mistake to think that God's love for us is as fickle as ours. That our fickle communion with Him ultimately determines how God views us. No, Paul wants God's people to know. He wants the Christian to know. In Christ, you are in Christ. You are united to Christ. In Christ, you are in the Father's presence. In Christ, God looks upon you favorably. His presence at the right hand means that your salvation is guaranteed, your redemption is guaranteed. His being there means that nothing, absolutely nothing, will ever be able to separate you from this precious Christ.
So Paul is saying to the Colossian believers, he's saying it to us, I want you to seek the things that are above. I want you to focus on your exalted Christ. I want you to be preoccupied with that Savior who not only gave himself as a sacrifice for your sin, but who now ever lives, ever lives at the Father's right hand to make intercession for you. Then he goes on to say in verse 2, Therefore, in light of all this, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Set your affections. So let me just briefly, briefly stop here a moment. So when the Bible talks about our affections, it talks about that faculty with which we have been created that enables us to emotionally love something. So perhaps you remember, and parents, you, hopefully you will review this with your children, God gave us three faculties, three faculties. The ability to know, the ability to love, and the ability to do something. To know, to love, and to do. Or to use theological terms, he gave us a mind, an intellect, he gave us affections, and he equipped us with a will, the ability to make decisions. Now you see, if there had been no sin, Faculties would have, perfect, would have worked perfectly. Because the beauty of it is the way they interact. And so before Adam sinned, because he knew God, he loved him with his affections and he obeyed him. His obedience, you see, Adam's obedience was a result of what he knew about his maker and the fact that he loved the God that he knew. And as a result of the fall, those faculties now misfire. We still have a mind. We still have affections. We still have a will. But they're all used in a corrupt way. And so a fallen man now only cares to know about himself. Fallen man, therefore, loves that which is an abomination in God's sight. And so consequently, fallen human beings constantly make choices that are sinful and that are evil. But when the Spirit of God makes us a new creature in Christ, when He makes us alive again, living souls, then those three faculties begin to function again. Then we begin by the Spirit's work we again begin to know God in Christ. And that will stir up our affections towards this Christ. And as a result, it will be our desire to live in obedience to that Christ. And so here, the apostle is basically saying, in light of what I've just told you, in light of this glorious truth, that you are risen with Christ, and that your Christ is on the Father's right hand on your behalf, interceding for you, representing you. In light of all that, set your affection on Him. Let Him be the focus of your affection. Let your whole life revolve around Him. And so, Several commentators pointed out that Paul is obviously making an allusion here to the important biblical practice of meditation. And so what we need to do is we need to meditate. We need to meditate upon the glorious truths regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. And meditation is an art that is has almost lost. We are so busy. We are so busy in our soundbite culture. 
And all we're doing is taking in information and perhaps even our Bible reading. Do we take time to meditate? To meditate upon what we read? To meditate upon the blessed truths regarding the Lord Jesus Christ? In other words, meditation is what digestion is to our food. What benefit would our food be if we didn't properly digest it? Our food needs to be digested. And then we, we reap the benefit of it. And so it is with the blessed truths about Christ. Set your affections on Him. Focus on Him. Focus on what God's Word says about Him. And in verse 16 of chapter 3, we have this wonderful exhortation. He says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. I ask you, congregation, is that true of me and you? Does the Word of God dwell in you richly? Are you taking the time to feed upon that Word? Are you taking the time to digest that word? Are you taking the time to meditate upon that word? Are you taking the time each day to be alone with God? Obviously, that's a very, a very essential component, a component of this, because as some of you, I'm sure many of you, have experienced if we do this faithfully and prayerfully, God will not put to shame those that seek Him. It so delights Him when we seek His face. It so delights Him when we feed upon His Word. It so delights Him when we prayerfully seek to let that Word of Christ dwell in us richly to all wisdom. You see, the more we do that, and this, this exhortation, set your affection, same as seek those things, not only are they imperatives, that means they are commands, they are holy commands, but they're in the present tense. So it is as if Paul is saying, you need to continually seek those things which are above. You need to continually set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. And of course, it all fits with John 15, where Christ promises His people that if you abide in me and if you abide in my word, if you abide in my promises, if you abide in me, if you take the time to walk with me and to live in fellowship with me, you will bear fruit. And see, the blessed outcome, if we set our affection on things above, where Christ is, we will become a heavenly-minded people. That doesn't mean that we ignore our daily responsibilities. But I read in one commentator a very simple statement. He said, a true Christian has his feet on earth, but his head is in heaven. His feet on earth, but his head in heaven. That's what Paul is saying here. Set your affection on things above. Let Christ and all that pertains to him, let Christ be the focus of your life. Be preoccupied with Him. Let His Word dwell in you richly. And then comes this, this convicting exhortation. And not things on the earth. Congregation, that's always the temptation. But it's especially the temptation of our culture. Our culture where there are so many things, so many things that are now available to us that former generations never knew. 
We now live in a culture that is completely obsessed with things. The purchase of things, more things, more material possessions. And we're all affected by that. As I've said before, I'll say it again. That material prosperity, that extraordinary wealth that is now within reach of almost everyone has sadly corrupted the church of Christ in the West. And why? Because rather than setting our affections on things above, we now put our affection on the things in the earth. And we are surrounded by it. You see, in former ages, you can rest assured, especially the last 50 years, that never, never in the history of God's church, never in the history of mankind, have God's children enjoyed such material prosperity as they do today. Unknown, unthinkable unthinkable in former ages. When you study the history of the Reformation, life was so exceedingly difficult. There were very, very few of God's people who had great material possessions. The vast majority of God's children throughout the ages have had very little in terms of material things. Yet what we often see when we study history Yet God's children prospered. They prospered because it, it compelled them to set their affection on things above. In Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus warns us. Take heed, he says, and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Our culture says that a man's life consists in the abundance of the things which he possesses. 1 John 2 verse 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 36 and 37 says, Incline my heart unto thy testimonies, and not to covetousness. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and quicken thou me in thy way. So am I saying that it's wrong to have material possessions? It's not what I'm saying. Paul is saying, do not set your affection on them. Do not set your, do not allow your life to be governed by things. But set your affection on things above. That's why Christ said, to follow me, to follow me as my disciple means that you will even be willing to forsake your houses, to forsake all of your possessions, to follow me. Set your affections on things above and not things on the earth. For, he says, our final thought, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. And so now the apostle is saying negatively what he said positively in verse 1. Of course, he was a Hebrew scholar, and in the Hebrew culture, as you know, you would emphasize something by repeating it, but repeating it in such a way that the repetition always sheds light on what you said first. So he says positively, remember, you are risen with Christ. And now he says, for you are dead. Not dead physically, 
that you are now dead to your former way of life. You are now dead to sin. You are now dead to the world. Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 14, he says, the, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Dead, dead. You are dead. Dead to your former life. And your life, your new life, he says, your new life is hid with Christ in God. Is that true of me? Is that true of you? Is that true of those who, who partook of this blessed sacrament this morning? Is it obvious in your life what Paul said that the world had been crucified to him and he to the world. Are we dead? Are we dead to this former life? Is it evident in my life and in your life that we are really united to Christ? That we live out of him? Then he makes another marvelous statement. Marvelous statement. Another glorious truth to reflect on. And he says, your life is hid with Christ in God. That's an amazing statement, congregation. So what Christ is saying, not only do I represent you at the Father's right hand, but your life is completely wrapped up in me. You are united to me. And because you are united to me, you have a place in the very heart of God. In me, you are in God himself. That's incredible. But that's the privilege. The privilege of the believer. That's our position. That's astonishing congregation. So what, what Paul is saying, Paul is saying, I have not only, not only have I brought you back into the presence of God, but through me, you have a place in the heart of God. That's astonishing. You have a place in the heart of God. That's the wonder of Christ's ministry is that he literally left his father's bosom in the fullness of time. He left his father's bosom. Why? In order to bring us back into the very bosom of God. The congregation, I will grant to you, as I say this to you, I tremble because I, I barely, barely understand what the Apostle Paul here is saying. But it's extraordinary. It is so extraordinary. And it's clear from the way Paul is writing, he wants every believer to know that. Paul is not saying that what I'm writing about is just for a few of God's elite. This is only meant for the most advanced members of the household of God. This is only for very, very advanced Christians. No, he is saying to every believer, every sinner who by grace has taken refuge to Christ. He's saying this, this is what you need to think about. This is what you need to set your affection on. This is what you need to recognize. You need to recognize that your life, your life that flows out of Christ, that life that draws you to Christ, that life that unites you to Him, enables you to abide in Him, that that life is absolutely secure in me because you are united to me. You are with me. But more than that, not only are you united to me, but in Christ, in me, in Christ, you have a place in the very heart of God. John writes this in 1 John 4, verse 15. Listen carefully. 
Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and listen carefully, and he in God. God dwelleth in him, and he in God. So it is God's delight to make known to his children that this is what Christ has accomplished for you. That Christ, the Son of God, your exalted Savior, has returned you not only into the presence of God, but to know that in Him you are eternally couched in the heart of God. That's what the Apostle is saying. Your life is hid with Christ in God. And that's why, dear believer, that's why your salvation is so absolutely secure. That's why Paul can end Romans 8 so boldly when he says nothing, and he lists, as you know, a long list of possibilities. Nothing shall ever be able to separate you, and listen carefully, from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Because your life is hid with Christ in God. We are slow learners, slow to grasp it, but it's here for our instruction, for our edification. And far too often, we live below our privileges, below what God would want us to know, and part of the reason is because we are so busy with this world, so busy with the things of this world, so distracted by this completely thing-oriented culture of ours that we fail to set our affections on things above. Because the more we do that, the more by grace we may do that, the more we will experience the wonder of this text. And the more we will realize how absolutely secure our relationship is to God in and through this precious Christ. And so, congregation, what kind of people are we? Are we seekers? of the things which are above. If someone were to shadow us for a month, 24-7, and shadow us, and witness everything we do, everything we say, what conclusion would they draw about you and me after shadowing us for one month? What conclusion would they draw? We have to realize, God knows everything about me, 24-7. Oh, congregation, oh, I pray that for me and for you, after such a month, the conclusion would be that we are seekers after those things which are above. That the conclusion would be that our affection is not set on the things of this world, but our affection is set on things above, set on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have the Lord's Supper. Again, there was a, a visible separation. So we need to examine ourselves even tonight. Who are we? It's one thing to say you're a Christian. It's one thing to take your place at the Lord's table. But it's another thing to be one, to really be one, to be the Christian that the Apostle describes for us here in this past. And yet, dear believer, be comforted. Because the God who has begun a good work in you will not finish. And the reason sometimes where, why he will afflict you greatly is to wean you 
from the things here below, from the things of this world, so that you will set your affection on things which are above. And so we have much to think about, much to reflect about. But if you can truly say, and you can lay your heart open to an all-knowing and all-seeing God, that this Christ is precious to your soul, oh, then I may say to you, in His name, your life is hid with me in God. Amen. Gracious God, we thank Thee for the blessings of this day, the witness of Thy Word. Lord, may we take it to heart. We've been given some clear and unmistakable instructions. And Lord, as we depart from here into a new week, oh, that by grace, even though we need to fulfill our daily responsibilities, in the workplace, as employers, as students, as children, whatever it may be, but that nevertheless, by grace, also in light of what we have experienced today, that we would seek those things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God, that our affections may be on things above and not the things on the earth. Forgive us our sins of this day and hour. Remember us with the favor which thou dost bear to thy people in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.